It's nice to see more and more people going, ah, I think maybe I'll come to church. Maybe I'll come to church and start to fill them back up again. I know we've been broadcasting just first service online, but we still have quite a few people watching online. And so that's good, you know, but I, I long for the day when people say, you know what, I'm coming to church. And because there's something about being here and being in fellowship with one another is just just an awesome thing. A couple of things I forgot to announce during announcements, totally lost track. We have our usher ministry, greeter ministry uh, meeting after second service. So if you're a part of the usher ministry or you'd like to be, ladies, if you maybe want to be a greeter in the, in the, you know, here at the church, want to be a part of that. As soon as service is over, we got some pizza downstairs. All of a sudden, who's going to want to be a part of the ministry? <laughs> pizza? I'll do that. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, just stick after and, and uh, we'll feed them. We'll talk about, you know, what that entails. And, and uh, we want to kind of get the, the ministry with all the stuff going on with the COVID-19 and all that. We want to be able to uh, minister to the people the best we can. So we want to get some guidelines out there, some things so we can help. And then what I didn't forget, what I did forget also is this coming Friday is actually the Go Team. That's right. Go Team. Uh <laughs> I guess you put it that way. <laughs> going all the world and preach the gospel, our go team, go team. Uh, they're going to be going out. And so we uh, just meet on the um, southwest corner of the square in downtown at 730. And wh- who knows who's going to be there. We're just going to share and just see what happens, you know. And, and so uh, Greg oversees that. You can raise, Greg, raise your hand, Greg. If you need more information, talk to him. He can get you the information on that. And then finally, next Sunday, I'm going to do a special prophecy update study called The Writing is on the Wall. And we're just going to look at some things happening in our world today and how that fits with Bible prophecy and, and where we're at uh, really as America and, and prophecy as well. And so we'll look at that. But this morning, in order to do that, we have to finish up the book of Colossians. So <laughs> we're going to finish up. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, all the way to the end of chapter 4. If you need a Bible, these guys have been standing here for a while, raising their hands. Even if you don't, but you want to take one just to make them feel better. Um, (laughs) They'll pass one to you if you need one. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22 this morning. Really, we come to the end of the book of Colossians. It's a great book because it really focuses totally on the supremacy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul had shown us repeatedly the importance of putting Christ first, trusting that He is enough for our faith, our salvation, that we don't have to add wealth or health or deed or ritual or anything else to Jesus and His love in order to enjoy the salvation that He gives. And now the Apostle Paul, no, he's in prison, he's in Rome, He's closing out this letter with five things, if you're taking notes, that we are to, number one, serve sacrificially. Number two, pray properly. Number three, walk wisely. Number four, speak salty. And number five, greet greatly. So those are our five points this morning. We're going to read the text as we go along. The title of my message this morning is Living the Christian Life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this sweet time of worship and, and uh, having Henry here and Sarah Beth. And Lord, what a joy uh, that they have been for us in leading us worship. Do pray for Laura and Dan as they enjoy a family reunion. 
uh, Lord, that you bless them and get them back safely. Lord, thank you for uh, just this opportunity to get into your word. Thank you, Lord, for someone's car alarm that's uh, honking that they need to turn off, Lord. And <laughs> thank you, Lord, for just uh, your word and how powerful it is as we read it and heed it. It does change our lives, Lord. And so we praise you and we thank you for this time together. Lord, finally, we pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again. They're not uh, true believers in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you especially speak to their heart? Lord, thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs) Everybody check your alarms. Last time I pulled out my keys, it went off, but it wasn't my car. That could be it. All right. Living the Christian life. Found a story about there was a trial in a small southern town, and the prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand, a grandmotherly elderly woman, and he approached her and says, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded by saying, Why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs, you think you're a big shot when you haven't got the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and said, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She again replied, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bailey since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, he's got a drinking problem, he can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention that he cheated on his wife with three different women. One of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. The defense attorney nearly collapsed. Then the judge asked both counselors to approach him at the bench, and in a very quiet tone he said, If either either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I'll send you both to jail faster than you know what hits you. Let me ask you, if the town gossip had a chance to say something about your life, would you be nervous? Let me put it another way. Are you truly living the Christian life? See, we've been looking recently at the role of the wife and the husband. And last week we looked at the role of the children and how they're to obey their parents and how dads are not to provoke their children. And we look at on Father's Day how to be good fathers. The bottom line is we've been focusing on faith and family. And the reality of it is that's what it all comes down to, faith and family. Faith first because the Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit should enjoy in his earthly relationships, especially in family relationships, uh, that faith that we have. Because the spiritual life is a life of joy. It's a life of thanksgiving. It's a life of humility. And then family comes second. And that starts with humility. The humility in our relationships is made known by how well we get along with one another. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. See, our focus is that of putting Christ first in all that we do. That's what the the book of Colossians has been all about. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 15 where we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, 
For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So knowing these things, that that he is predominant, he is the supremacy of Jesus Christ, how are we to be living this Christian life? What would Mrs. Jones have to say about you? That brings us to our first point. If you're truly living the Christian life, you're going to serve sacrificially. Serve sacrificially. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 1 of chapter 4. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1, chapter 4. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul begins in verse 22 by saying, serving the Lord, by serving others, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. You know, eye service. We all, we all know what it's like, someone that serves with eye service. We've all seen that co-worker suddenly start working a little bit harder when the boss walks by, and then as soon as the boss leaves, their feet are back up on the desk and they're doing nothing. But if we're truly believers, and if we're truly living the Christian life, then we must first and foremost please God. And God doesn't like eye service. He's not pleased by eye service. Then he says we're to serve with sincerity of heart, fearing God. In your work, at your work, in your workplace, there should be plenty of evidence that you love and you have a reverence for God. Now, perhaps that means you'll be the only one there doing the best job possible, even when the boss isn't around. And at the same time, you're giving God honor in all that you do. And that's not easy, especially when you have co-workers that, that are mocking you. They don't respect God and they're embarrassed by how hard you work. Man, slow down. You're making us all look bad. That doesn't change anything. Keep fearing God. Keep serving the Lord. Now, this goes for employers as well. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, employee, employer, we all must answer before God. And, and Paul is saying, do the right thing. In fact, it goes back to verse 24. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever we do, we're doing it for the Lord. We're not doing it for man. We're not doing it to be seen by man. And as we do it for the Lord, His Word says He will reward us for that and when the day the rewards go out. But He gives a warning in verse 25. But He who does wrong will will be repaid for what He has done and there is no partiality. Retribution from God as well as reward from God is promised if the worker does not do his work well. You may may be able to fool your earthly boss, but you don't fool God. And the day will come when it's time for the rewards. And God will say, I really wanted to give you a reward for serving me at work, but you really didn't. And in fact, you didn't serve your boss either. You're taking extra long lunches, getting to work late, going home early, really not doing your job in between. Listen, divine reward is promised to those who do their job well. But divine retribution is promised for all who do poorly. 
It's like this. There's a story of a construction worker who worked for a builder for years and years. And he was about to retire. So the builder said to him, do me a favor and build me one more house before you retire. The man agreed. But he wanted to do it quickly and didn't really care what materials he put in it. So kind of want the cheapest route and the quickest route so he could go. So he put the cheap standard light fixtures in the thing, the hollow core doors, the, the single pane windows, the cheap plumbing fixtures. The construction worker had it done in two months from start to finish. Tells his builder, hey, the job's all done. Now this builder who he worked for for years turns him and says, now that you're finished, I wanted to give you this house as a retirement present. Here's your keys. It's horrible. That's why Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. What does that mean? It means you're going to serve sacrificially, looking out for others more than yourself. And that means, number two, we're going to pray properly. Look at verses two through four. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Pray properly. I heard that there's a new dial-up prayer for atheists. You call up and it rings and rings and rings and no one answers. Praying properly. How do we do that? Four things Paul lays out here. We're to continue earnestly in prayer is the first thing. That means to be steadfast, constant, to give priority with intensity. It describes the steadfast, devoted, and persistent prayer life. Do we have that? Jesus gave a great example of this, the best example of this. In fact, if you take note, the whole gospel of Luke could be renamed the prayers of Jesus. Because they're recorded in the more than the other Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we really see the prayer life of Jesus. The other Gospels say Jesus went to the Jordan when the Spirit descended on him like a dove. But in Luke's Gospel, it says that Jesus was praying and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The other Gospel says that Jesus chose his twelve disciples. Luke tells us that after Jesus prayed all night, that he then chose his twelve disciples. The other evangelists record Jesus' death on the cross. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The other gospels say when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, they just tell us that he went there. Luke tells us that while Jesus was praying that he was transfigured. And the reason being is because there's nothing more transfiguring and more life-changing than the practice of prayer. The scripture said that the disciples went to bed, but Jesus went to pray as was his custom. It was Jesus' custom to pray. In fact, Jesus encouraged us to continue earnestly in prayer by what he said in Matthew 7, 7, when he said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He's using very, very strong language in the importance of, of continuing earnestly in prayer. Ask implies that we know that we are aware of a need. We need to ask. People ask when they have a need. Seek involves asking, but it adds action to the request. We don't just ask for help. We get up and look for someone or something that can help. It takes an effort. And then the third thing is the final step is knock. It includes asking and looking, but also persevering. The picture is a person that keeps knocking and knocking and knocking until he gets an answer. 
Listen, God is not asking us to do the impossible. When he commands us to pray always, this is something that he has enabled us to do. Our contact with God should be as natural as when we breathe. Warren Wearsby uh, said that prayer is like the air for our soul. I like that. In the natural world, we need four things to survive. We need food, water, air, and light. Take any one of those things out of the natural world, and the world falls apart. The spiritual world is the same way. We need food, water, light, and air. The light of the Christian life is Jesus Christ. The water is living water that comes from the Holy Spirit. Our food is the Word of God, and air is our prayer. You know, we breathe always. We cannot survive without breathing, yet you don't, you don't think about it. You don't go, okay, I'm going to take a breath right now. Okay, I'm going to take another one. I think I'm done. Breathing's overrated. You don't stop. You know, you don't say, well, other people are breathing. I don't have to breathe. No, physically, you cannot survive without breathing. In the same way, spiritually, we cannot survive without praying. It's vital in the day in which we live that we pray. Because our our prayers is our connection to God. It's our communication to God. And God's word is our communication to us. We have to keep those communication lines open. That's why for me, and I think for many of you, one of the most hardest things I do, one of the most difficult things you do, is to pray. It's tough because the enemy knows the power of prayer. He knows the effectiveness in prayer. He also knows the confusion and division that can be brought about without it. And he's going to do whatever he can to get you distracted to do, to, for you to do anything else but pray. That's why one of the greatest temptations we all face is after being a Christian for many, many years is, is the sin of prayerlessness. I do, do believe it's a sin not to pray because the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Paul says in verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer. Next, in order to pray properly, we need to be vigilant in our prayer. So, so that's B, the second thing. That being vigilant is translated, translated being watchful, being alert. Now this goes all the way back to the book of Nehemiah. They were building the walls and the gates, if you recall, and the gates of Jerusalem. And the attacks were coming. Jeremiah, or Jeremiah, Nehemiah 4.9 says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. They're watching, they're praying, watching and praying. Jesus used the same phrase, watch and pray, several times, as did the Apostle Paul. But I think they're in the garden, when the disciples slept, when they should have been watching and praying. And Jesus said to them, What? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray, Jesus urged his disciples. And they failed to do that, and that that led to really a disastrous disloyalty in the garden when Jesus was arrested. Similar failures happen today as well. Watch and pray. We need to have an alertness as to what's going on around us so we recognize that we need to pray. Jesus seemed to repeatedly give this warning, I say to you, watch. And it's called, it's a call to vigilance. Partly because the devil is always, you know, on the prowl like a hungry lion seeking whom he may devour. False teachers like, like, like fierce wolves. But partly because the Lord's return won't take us by surprise. That's why he's telling us to watch. 
Jesus is laying out the end time scenario for his disciples as they were asking him what would be the sign of his return and the sign of the end of the age. Jesus laid out the scene for them and then towards the end he says in Luke 18.1 Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. I tell you, if you look around in this world today and it, if it isn't bringing you to your knees then something's wrong. We need to be praying. And as I said, we're going to look more at this next week in a special end time study but we need to be vigilant in our prayers. We need to be watching, praying And next, Paul says, in order to pray properly, we need to be thankful in our prayers. Verse 2, again, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. That's the key to proper prayer, thankfulness. You might say gratitude is the stimulus check that actually helps. Folks, we have so much, so much to be thankful for. I don't think there's a single excuse for any rational Christian to be unthankful. When you think about all that God has done for you, think about the people that He brought into your life that He used to lead you to bring, to come to faith in Him. Think about the tragedies that the Lord shielded you from. We know that, 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 I mean, how many times He's healed our bodies that we weren't even aware that something was going on. Think about the reality of our inheritance. We don't fully understand the nature of eternal life. We have no concept of what it will be like to gaze on the majesty and the glory of our Lord. We can't even begin to understand the horrors of eternal punishment that we have been spared from by His grace. But as we begin to think about these things, we find a heart of thankfulness that's just welling up inside that you can't keep quiet. You guys, oh Lord, thank you, thank you. Finally, proper prayer means our prayer will be purposeful. Sadly, all too often, our prayers are kind of vague and, and, and general. Oh, Lord, save the world. Amen. Okay. Yet Paul, in verses 3 and 4, gets right to his purpose in prayer. Specifically, he says at verse 3, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. This is interesting to me that that Paul says in verse 3, pray for us that God would open up a door, but it wasn't the prison door that he was in. Man, if I was writing a letter from prison, I would say, pray that God would open up this prison door so I can get out of here. doesn't do that. Paul's prayer here is is for a twofold purpose. First, that God would open us a door for the word to go forth, to spread the word. And secondly, that he would present the gospel in a way that people could understand. Now, what a great prayer. What's something to be prayed for? That God would open to us a door for the word to go forth. What Paul wanted was for this Colossian church to pray for not his release from prison, not his release from Nero's clutches, but that God would open up doors of opportunity for the gospel message to go out. The message that Christ died upon the cross to redeem mankind. There's complete forgiveness to those who put their faith and trust in Him if you repent and and you can be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Paul was uh, desiring opportunities to share that gospel. And then Paul's second prayer request is that when he preached God's word, that it would be clear and that people would understand, verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Man, that's my prayer every week. If you're a teacher, that's your prayer. Can I relate? You can relate. I, you know, week after week, Lord, help me to say those things 
that, that, that you'd have me to say in a way that people can understand. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He once said, Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. But some preachers put the food so high that neither the sheep nor the lambs can reach it. They seem to have read the text, feed my giraffes. <laughs> so that was funny. I read a story of some graffiti found on the wall of the St. John's University in Minnesota, which reads this. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? What? What is that? You know, when we share the gospel, keep it simple. You know the acronym for KISS. Keep it simple, saint. You thought I was going to say stupid. thought I was going to say stupid. Now saint. It's been the motto for Calvary Chapels for years. Simply teach the Bible simply. Share with people in a way that they can understand and apply it to their lives. I think as believers, we can actually freak out non-believers, those that have never been in church, those that don't know anything about the Lord, if we use too much of our Christianese, hey, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Uh, ew, no. <laughs> I mean, someone that has no idea what that's talking about, they, they would be grossed out. Or we can be way too harsh. Unless you repent, you are going to burn in hell, you sinner. I mean, come on, while it's true, <laughs> how does that show a person how much God loves them? And how Jesus died for them? So to pray properly means that we need to be continue, continue earnestly in prayer, be vigilant in our prayer life, be thankful in our prayers, and we need to pray with a purpose. Pray specifically. Pray uh, for people that you know. Call them out by name. Write down their names in your prayer journal. Third point in our study this morning, look at verse 5. It's walk wisely. Paul says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. So Paul says two things when it comes to walking wisely. Number one, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Someone put this best in a poem. Perhaps you've heard it before. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Man, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Tell me what is the gospel according to you. See, we have to ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards unbelievers, to those on the outside? Is it disdain or is it compassion? Is it a bother or is it a heartache? To be wise in the way that we walk means that we're careful not to say or do or post anything on social media that would undermine our witness. In other words, we need to remember that those who don't know Christ are watching us, listening to us, reading what we post. And it's true, you might be the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read, so we need to be careful about the way we act. People are making decisions all the time on the validity of Christianity based upon our lives. And secondly, to walk wisely means that we're going to redeem the time. The phrase redeeming the time is a commercial term meaning to buy up. It's like what happened a few months back, if you recall, everyone bought up all the TP that they could find 
The word generally means to buy all that is anywhere to be bought and not to allow the suitable moment to pass by unheeded, but to make it one's own. In other words, take every opportunity to walk wisely, speak up for Christ when we see one, make every effort every day, every moment to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I mean, life is going by so fast. Uh, we know the Lord is coming back soon, so we need to make it count. We need to be wise with the time that God has given to us. You know, according to those that study such things, the average American will spend six months of his life waiting at red lights. What if we decided at every red light just to pray for people in our fellowship? What if we decided to keep an open Bible on the seat next to us or an open app on your phone in order to read a verse or two during every red light? People probably honk at you if you're on your phone, but, but, but my point is getting the Word in our life, praying for people, putting God's Word to memory in your heart. See, I'm not talking about getting up at 3 in the morning every morning and reading 10 chapters a day. How about just even starting at a stoplight? Or when we spend our time on a cell phone, think about how much time we spend on our phones checking our email and text messages. What if every time you looked at your contact list, you prayed for those people on the list? Listen, I am convicted by this as well because I'm constantly checking my emails and and looking on my phone, checking the weather, checking the news. Think about how much time we spend on that nowadays. See, we need to redeem the time, taking every opportunity to know and serve the Lord. So point one, serve sacrificially. Point two, pray properly. Number three, walk wisely. Number four, speak salty. You know, salty has a no, whole new meaning now. Salty nowadays, it's you know, kind of sarcastic, and, and, you know, but it's different back then. Look at verse six. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Paul's saying our conversations that we have, should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. He's calling us to focus our words on those things that help others, that encourage others, that lift others up, not tear them down. Seasoning our words with care and concern and humor and love for the other person. To ask ourselves, what am I about to say? Is this going to encourage this person? Is it going to uplift them? Is it going to enhance the flavor of our conversation? You know, in Luke 4.22, people said this about Jesus. They spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. There was an attractiveness to Jesus because of the way that he spoke. Gracious words. Oh, how our speech needs to be seasoned with grace. And we can't do that unless that grace is in our hearts to begin with. Jesus said in Matthew 12.34, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 10, 20 and 21, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the lips of the righteous feed many. That's how I want my words to be. Gracious to the hearers, appetizing words, salty words. The idea is, you know, it's like salty popcorn that they sell you at the movie theaters. You know, they, they, I hear the movies are opening up again, I don't know. But they sell you that, you know, barrel sizing of popcorn you know, and so you start eating that stuff and, and within a minute you go, man, I need something to drink. And so you got to go out and then buy that gallon of soda that costs a hundred bucks. And, and they know this. They know that salt creates thirst. So our talk and our attitudes are meant to make people thirsty for Jesus Christ. 
I think of the woman at the well where Jesus says, I'll give you living water where you'll never thirst again. Jesus was talking about a relationship with him, a satisfying, thirst-quenching relationship. You know the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Someone added, you may not be able to make a horse drink, but you can put salt in his oats and make him very thirsty. Listen, we need to pray, Lord, help me. And all I do and say to give people a thirst for you so that you can quench their thirst. Help my speech, Lord, to be seasoned with salt and full of grace. I think if every Christian, every believer would pray for the lost and look for opportunities to witness, to walk in wisdom, to speak with seasoned speech, we would see so many more people come into faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul called them to serve sacrificially, pray properly, walk wisely, season our speech. Finally, number five, we're to greet greatly. And really, the remainder of this chapter, Paul presents kind of a group photo. You know, he, he likes to point each one out and he sends greetings to. It's like he's holding up a, a photo. Go, this guy here, well, he's done this. And this guy here, he's done that. Really acknowledging and lifting up those that helped him in the ministry while he was in prison in Rome. These are folks that have come alongside and had made his ministry possible. He couldn't do it by himself. Nobody can. Not even the great Apostle Paul could do it alone. He had to have a little help from his friends. And they supported him. They helped him. Now Paul there in the city of Rome in prison, in, in his first two imprisonments, the second one is going to result in his death. But at his first imprisonment in Rome, he had some friends that had stuck by his side the whole time. They paid a price associating with him, but they counted the cost. They made that commitment. They hung in with him thick or thin. And now Paul records for all of history to read about his friends. See, this helps us to understand that this letter wasn't just some rhetoric directed at a faceless crowd, but they were written to people that Paul loved and cared about. And Paul wanted to give a shout out to them. As I close this letter, I got to give a shout out to these guys. They have just helped me immensely. We're going to look at each one briefly and then we'll close. Look at verse 7 and 8. Tychicus is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So Paul starts with Tychicus first. And he's, he's sending him out. He says he's a, a faithful minister. He's going to tell you everything about what's going on. And, and he's going to comfort your hearts. You know, his name means fortuitous or fortunate. He's ministered, he ministered with Paul for many years. Mentioned five times in the New Testament. He went with Paul to Jerusalem knowing what would await them. Remember Agabus, the prophet, came to Paul, tied himself up and said, Paul, this is what they're going to do to you when you hit the city. So there's this dark cloud that was hanging over the whole adventure. And the cloud had turned into a full-blown storm when they did enter into Jerusalem. And the end result was Paul was arrested, taken to Caesarea to be tried, and then eventually sent to Rome, which is another dangerous journey. And yet Tychicus stayed with Paul that whole time. And even through his release two years later. Someone once said that the greatest ability in all the world is availability. That's what God looks for. He doesn't look for your ability. He looks for your, for your availability. He wants to use you. God used Tychicus. He was available to Paul at all times for all things. In verse 9, Paul mentions Onesimus. Look at verse 9. 
With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Again, letting them know what's going on. Uh, Onesimus, this is a guy that had a sinful past. Remember, he was a runaway slave whose return to his master was the occasion for the book of Philemon. Remember, he ripped off his master. He ran away, went to Rome. Then he got saved through the apostle Paul. Then Paul sends him back and says to Philemon, receive him as a brother. And whatever he has done, however much he's, he's ripped you off, charge it to my account. I'll cover it. I'll pay for it. Now, although Onesimus was a runaway slave, Paul describes him here as our faithful and beloved brother. See, when a person comes to faith in Christ, the past is all gone. It's no longer an issue. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All old things have passed away. All things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul tells the Colossians that the man who left uh, Colossians was as a runaway slave, now returns as one of you. Treat him as a member of the body of Christ. Come on, he's come to faith. Welcome him in the fold. See, Onesimus is, is a, a testimony to the power of God to transform a life. Verses 10 and 11, we have three more men. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. They're, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Three fellow Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, friends that, that chose to stick with Paul. Aristarchus is first. He appeared with Paul when he was in Ephesus. He was seized by a rioting mob who recognized him as one of Paul's friends. Aristarchus stayed with Paul on his return trip to Jerusalem and on his voyage to Rome and is still with Paul there in prison as he writes this letter to the Colossians. Aristarchus chose to make Paul's lifestyle his own and that speaks of his own sympathetic, caring heart that he had. He gave up his freedom to meet Paul's needs. And any leader would be blessed to have a faithful Aristarchus at his side through his trials. People who are just called alongside to help fulfill Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. After Aristarchus, we read Mark. He's the, the man with a surprising future. Mark, we know, was a cousin of Barnabas who joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But midway through that journey, Mark says, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. That really bothered Paul. And Paul looked at Mark as being a flake. And perhaps, you know, he was at that time. And so when it came time for Barnabas and Paul to go out on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance. Paul said, nah, not so fast. And the whole matter turned to this huge, big dispute between Paul and Barnabas that led to them splitting up. That was even in God's plan because the gospel wanted even further. Paul went out with Silas. Uh, and Barnabas went out somewhere else with Mark. But Mark later proved himself with Barnabas and eventually with Paul. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul names Mark among his fellow workers. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy to pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. The guy I didn't want to have anything to do with, now he's useful for me. Now, if the story ended just then, that would be great. Man, there's a transformation. Mark's doing great. But Mark continued on in the ministry and was used by the Spirit to do what only three other men in history were called to do, and that is to write down the account of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark. 
See, the greatest lesson we can learn from Mark is Mark's life is that God heals and restores and He uses those to whom He does restore. His life is a testimony to God's ability uh, to, to heal and to, to use those that have failed in the past because we serve a God of second and third and fourth chances, don't we? After Mark comes Jesus, also called Justice in verse 11. Nothing is, is known of Jesus who is called Justice just apart from this verse, but he's a man with a strong commitment. Because according to this verse, Justice and Mark and Aristarchus were the only fellow workers that Paul uh, had with him who were his fellow Jews. He would leave his people to identify with Paul. That demonstrates a strong commitment, willing to take a stand alongside Paul no matter what the cost. Verse 12, we have Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in, in Hierapolis. Epaphras, the man with a devoted passion. Now, we were first introduced to him back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. I like Epaphras. He's going around speaking good things about people. Paul says he declared to us your love in the Spirit. I want to be like that. Talking about people behind their backs, all the good things that the people do. Ah, these people, oh, this guy is great. Man, you got, you're going to love this guy. Verse 14, we have the good Dr. Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and, and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. Luke was a man with a specialized talent, Paul's personal physician, as well as his close friend, a Gentile believer who traveled frequently with Paul on his missionary voyages. In fact, it could be because Paul had a reoccurring illness on his first missionary journey that prompted Luke to say, I'm going to stick with you. You're going to need my help. I'm going to stay with you. And like Paul, Luke was a very educated, cultured man, as evidenced by the literary quality of the Greek in the gospel that he wrote and in the book of Acts. See, he used his specialized talent, his gift that he has as a doctor, uh, for the furtherance of the gospel. And that's to be admired. See, Luke teaches us that God has given each of us gifts, talents, and abilities to go beyond taking care of our own physical needs but caring for the needs of others. Now, out of this whole group picture, our next one is really kind of the saddest. Verse 14 says, Demas greets you. You might say he's a man with a sad future. He's the, the stain in the group. He's the guy where you look at the picture and go, oh man, that's too bad about this guy. He'd made a substantial commitment to the Lord's work and was with Paul in both imprisonments. Although, unlike the other companions, his future was sad. Paul records the tragedy of Demas, his demise, in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Things going on in the world, the, the things of the world became irresistible to him, and he abandoned both Paul and the ministry. The life of Demas reminds us we need to be on guard all the time. And they stay accountable all the time. Don't drift away. And finally he mentions uh, Nymphus, verse 15, and the church that is in his house. I would say this is a man with the gift of hospitality. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. 
He's mentioned simply because they, he allowed someone to have a Bible study in his home. I like that. That should be a great encouragement to any of you that have ever had a, a Bible study take place in your house. All this guy did was open up his home for a Bible study and he gets his name mentioned in the Bible for all eternity. Verse 16 and 17, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, which we do not have, so you can't do that. Verse 17, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Final greeting goes to Archippus, the man in need of encouragement. He's also mentioned in Philemon, uh, verse 2, as a fellow soldier of Christ. Here, Paul just takes a minute before he closes out his letter just to encourage this guy. So there you have it. Great greetings from a great group photo. Men who, you know, really hasn't written any books, but they're still guys who are used by God. Men who ministered to the needs of others. Hebrews 6.10 speak of, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God will remember. God knows. And finally, verse 18, we close. This salutation by my own hand. Paul, remember my change. Grace be with you. Amen. Again, Paul is writing this from a prison cell in Rome, having been in prison for his work for spreading the gospel. Men and women today are still imprisoned and even killed for the very same thing, for simply being believers, for simply owning a Bible, for simply going to church, And they simply ask the same thing that Paul asks here. Remember their persecution. Remember what they're going through. Remember their chains. I don't think we as Americans can truly understand what it's like when those who are being persecuted for Christ ask us to pray. We need to pray. Now, as we close, before you leave her this morning feeling beat up because you don't pray enough, beat up because you don't speak out enough, beat up because you don't serve enough, let me encourage you to cancel your guilt trip, okay? (laughs) Get off that plane, get off that train, get out of that car. (laughs) The key to praying more, the key to witnessing more, is not necessarily to become more disciplined. No, discipline is a good thing. But my guess is that you've tried that before. So the real answer is to cultivate intimacy with God by bowing to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. See, we will not pray until we see prayer as a way to express our love to Christ and recognize that He's even more eager to meet with us than we are to meet with Him. It's impossible to salt our speech with the deliciousness of Jesus when we haven't been enjoying and tasting it for ourselves. If evangelism is what spills over when we bump into someone, then we must make sure that what bubbles over is appetizing. Prayer and evangelism just flow out of a relationship with our Lord. Are you growing in love for Jesus? Cancel your reservations on the guilt cruise. Book yourself on the grace trip. Live for the Lord. Love the Lord. Make Him supreme in our lives. Finally, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not born again, you know what it means to have your sin forgiven, to have a promise for heaven. I want to give you that opportunity. Donald Barnhouse often closes church service with this prayer. Lord, dismiss us with your peace, except for those who don't know you. Keep them miserable until they come to know the Prince of Peace. I like that. Lord, keep them miserable, horribly, you know, uh, unfulfilled until they come to know you as Lord and Savior. 
So as soon as our service is over, as soon as we're done, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, please come up and talk to me. I would love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, your word has something to say to every single one of us here this morning. And your spirit, thank you for speaking to our hearts. And now, Lord, we pray you would help us by your spirit to put these things into action. Lord, that we would serve sacrificially. Lord, not looking for that pat on the back, but looking to please you and to honor you. Not with eye service, Lord, but just in fear and loyalty. Father, help us to pray properly, to continue earnestly in prayer. Lord, as we look around in this world, we need to watch and we need to be praying. And thankful, Lord, that we are not of this world, but we are the world that you have prepared for us. Lord, we need to pray with a purpose. Father, give us opportunities to share with people that don't know you. And as we do, Lord, make our words salty, Lord. Help us to give people uh, uh, just the salt that makes them th- more thirsty for your word, God. Help us to walk wisely, redeeming the time, Lord. And Father, I want to thank you for those that have come alongside in ministry here at Calvary Chapel, that are involved in the ministries here, Lord. I can put up a group photo of everybody here and, and name out the things that you have done in and through their lives. We're so thankful for them. I'm thankful for them, Lord. And finally, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, touch their heart. Show them their need to know you and to love you and to serve you. Show them their, show them their sin that they need to repent from to find that grace and love and hope. Thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand up.